Thank you. Yes, as, as Pastor Ron said, I'm one of the local missionaries supported by the church here. I work here in Chilliwack with unreached youth. So I consider it to be a cross-cultural ministry because they do say youth have a youth culture. So there's a whole other language you've got to learn, and you have to relearn it about every six months because it changes. Um, I've been working here in Chilliwack since September last year. Um, I've worked with Youth Unlimited for 13 years total, um, and we got a call uh, by God that was just confirmed through many avenues to come here to Chilliwack um, because there is no Youth Unlimited here, um, and we it just sensed a clear call for for us to um, being sent here to Chilliwack, and uh, a lot of what I do, I feel like I'm following in the footsteps of, of Nehemiah. If you're familiar with the biblical story, Nehemiah was serving in a foreign king's uh, palace as a cupbearer. And he heard news of Jerusalem and how Jerusalem was in disrepair and the walls were torn down and the worship in the temple wasn't happening. And it broke his heart because he knew it should not be so. And he went to the king and he pleaded the king. He had a vision to repair things. And he went to the king and asked for resources. And he asked for the ability to go and make things right. In a lot of ways, I, I feel similar to that in that I see in Chilliwack, the, the youth in Chilliwack, ha, many of them are in very dire straits. They're in rough conditions. I shared last time when I preached back in February that I found two interesting, unique things about Chilliwack in that for the size of city it is, there's a higher number of at-risk youth and they're involved in very risky behaviors at a very young age, different than in neighboring communities. And I also noticed that Chilliwack has a high number of churches and a high number of Jesus followers. And at Youth Unlimited, we have a little tagline that says, connecting teens, transforming lives. And so we strive to foster those connections that these at-risk youth need to thrive. And, and obviously the main connection that they need is Jesus. And they, they get that through connecting with caring adults who know Jesus. And they speak in action and in words the love of Jesus to the kids. And so that's what we're trying to create. And as I go and connect with the churches uh, in Chilliwack, that's what I'm doing, and, and, and people, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of doing what Nehemiah did, going to the king and asking for resources and asking for the ability to, to make what, is, what should not be so and change that and reach these kids. There's a great partnership that Youth Unlimited has with, with Central Community Church. I've been working alongside John um, here at, at, the, at the Ed Center on Monday mornings with a hot breakfast. And, in, and thanks to that connection that was already here through Central Church, many doors have been opened to me and to Youth Unlimited at, uh, at the Ed Center, which is the alternative school here in town, which basically um, works with some of the most vulnerable youth in Chilliwack. So on to today's message. I get the honor of closing out our series talking about our values, uh, what we value as a church. Last week, Matt preached on the value of the entire church being equipped for ministry. And he hit home the point that the job of the church's leadership isn't to do the ministry, but to equip all of us to do the ministry. He emphasized this by quoting John J.D. Greer, Greer, quote, saying, when I became a pastor, I left the ministry. At the end of the service, if you were here, Matt had us all stand, 
and he's actually doing this today up at Promontory, he had us all stand and he commissioned us into full-time ministry. This was a perfect setup for the message today. I'm preaching on the sixth and last value, which is sent on mission. So last week we were commissioned, and today we receive our marching orders. Our passage for today is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So turn there in your Bible if you have one, or on your device if you have one. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles for you at the end of the aisles. And uh, if you don't actually have a Bible at all, you can keep that. That's our gift to you. When Matt gave me the text for today's message, I responded to him by saying, man, it's, that's such a small text, but it's such a big text. There's a lot here, and it's, it's very important for what we do as a church and how we move forward. So Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Let's pray. Father, I come before you humbly, feeling very inadequate, feeling tired, but knowing, Lord, that you have more power and more ability than, than we could ever imagine. And your words and your spirit can accomplish your work through us. I ask that you would fill me as I speak. I ask that you would work in hearts and make them responsive as they listen. Lord, I ask that your spirit would convict and encourage and inspire and empower us today as we look at what it means to be sent on mission. Amen. As we work through the text today, we'll be uh, trying to answer four questions. Number one, who sends us on mission? Number two, what is the mission? Number three, to whom are we sent? And number four, what is stopping us and what can we do? On this last one, I'm going to need your help, so be prepared and warned. There's going to be some audience participation this week. The first question, who is sending us on mission? The words of the text today are Jesus' words. So we quickly know the answer, that it's Jesus who's sending us. And he's sending us with his message. God, from the beginning of time, is a missionary God. It's part of who God is as the Trinity, in that God is always working to reconcile his lost children to himself. We see this throughout the pages of scripture. In fact, it's the overarching story weaved all the way through the Bible. God created everything for his glory and his pleasure. And the pinnacle of his creation was humanity in his image. But we rebelled against him. We tried to prop ourselves up as our own gods that we knew better than him, that we could become wise like God. And as we turned away from him, he immediately began to pursue us. The, per, the first pivotal text in the Bible uh, about this is the calling of Abraham found in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. 
I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So here we see a foreshadowing of God's uh, creation of the nation of Israel, which was going to be a witness to all the nations and, and the conduit that he would speak truth in his revelation to us. And we see also foreshadowing of the Messiah to come, that all nations, all peoples would be blessed through Abram's descendants. As God continues through history, he saves the Hebrews from slavery to the Egyptians and he continues to unfold his mission to save his lost children. As he forms the nation of Israel, he gives them the law, which shows us how we ought to live and shows us that we can't live up to it. And even when we are the ones that have sinned against God, he provides the sacrificial system as a way to deal with our sin in in the time before Jesus came. Israel was also set up as a light post to the nations in a dark world. They were to be an example to the rest of the nations, displaying God's power, proclaiming his name and majesty so that they too could come and be saved. And then the scriptures say, in the fullness of time, Jesus came. God as man came to earth. We get a picture of this described in the manner in which he came in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Speaking of Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. He came humbly, and he came obedient. Can you believe that? Like, stop for a second and think about this. God, the creator in heaven, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus then, obedient to the Father, gives up that and comes to earth as a human But not only just as a human, but as a poor, helpless infant, the child of an unwed teen mother. And then in his ministry, after after healing and teaching and showing God's love, he receives as a thanks from us a criminal's death. And does for us what we could never do for ourselves. He dies for our sins. He pays the penalty for our sins. And he frees us from the power of sin through his death on the cross. That was the pinnacle of God's mission to reach his children. But it wasn't the end. Because in in John 20, 21, Jesus says, As the Father sent me... So, even so, I am sending you. So we are sent by Jesus in the same way that the Father has sent him. 
In the same way that we read in Philippians 2, obedient and humble. So we are obedient to the Father in being sent, and we are humble as we reach out. Jesus also said that he would be sending to us a helper, the Holy Spirit, which we see today in today's passage. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. See, there's a pattern building, right? God the Father sends God the Son. Then God the Father and God the Son send God the Holy Spirit. And then God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit send us, send the church, his people, his disciples, to go and make more disciples. I love, I love just a few verses earlier than today's text, right at the beginning of, of the book of Acts. Acts is basically the second book that Luke wrote. It's kind of like Luke 2, the sequel. And he starts off by, by he, he wrote both books to Theophilus to share with him what, what's going on with Jesus. What's all this going on, this Christian movement, like what is happening? And so in the Gospel of Luke, he tells the whole story of Jesus, right? His, his, his birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, all of that. And he starts off Acts with saying, in the former book, I wrote to you all that Jesus began to do. So Acts 2 is what is the continuation of what, sorry, not Acts 2, Luke 2, Acts, is the continuation of what Jesus did, which starts there and goes on to this day, goes on to what we are doing today. So we see that we are being sent in the same things that Jesus was doing. Jesus began this work and the church is continuing it. So it, it makes a difference who sends you, right? I have three sons, Isaac, Connor, and Matthew. And Isaac is the oldest, so sometimes he thinks he's in charge of his younger brothers. So there'll be times where he'll go to one of the younger brothers and tell them to do something. But the younger brothers actually they do the same to him. But but when he does this, if he just does it of his own accord, his brothers won't even give him the time of day. They're not going to listen to anything he says. But if Lisa or I ask Isaac, can you go please tell Connor to do this or uh, Matthew to do this, he'll go and he'll say, mom said or dad said, suddenly he has power and authority. We are sent by Jesus. We are sent with the power of the Holy Spirit. It makes a difference who sends us. God the Father sends us. God the Son sends us. God the Holy Spirit sends us. The second question is, what is the mission we are sent on? When asking this question, two Bible passages come up very often. They are known as the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. The Great Commission is found in Matthew 28, 18 to 21. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In many ways, Jesus' instructions seem pretty clear. The mission is to go and make disciples of the entire globe, 
of every people group, of every nation. This is repeated in today's passage. Go to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We are to baptize them and teach them to obey everything that Jesus taught. Jesus is telling his disciples to go and make disciples. And those disciples are to make disciples. So he's telling his disciples to make disciple-making disciples. But really the term disciple-making disciple is pure redundancy, just like this entire paragraph. Because in the biblical description, there's, there's no such thing as a disciple that does not make more disciples. It's part of being a disciple. It's not something you just keep to yourself. So a church that does not make disciples would be the same as a bakery that sells flour, sugar, oil, and yeast, but no bread. It looks like it has all the ingredients, but it's not churning, any, churning out any baked goods. So it's, it's not a bakery. So you'd have to question, if a church isn't producing disciples that produce disciples, it is, a, is it accomplishing the mission God created it for? Now, being here for the last, being attending for three years and being a, a ministry partner for two years now, I've gotten to know John, uh, you know, working at the Ed Center together and helping out at youth group. I've gotten to know Chris because I help out sometimes with the children's ministry and the drama stuff during the summer programs. And, of course, I've gotten to know Matt in conversations about, about preaching and, uh, and, and the church in general and stuff. And one thing I love about Central is our pastors care so much about making disciples. They're constantly looking for ways in which that can be accomplished and how we can change things to get that done. Right now in, in the Celestia Room, the children are hearing the message of the crucifixion and they're being called to faith. So today, Today, as we speak right here, right now, this may be the day of salvation for some of the children in there. And what a glorious thing is that, right? That's the beginning of the discipleship journey. We're not called, we're not called to make converts, right? We're called to make disciples. And that's different. In the Great Commission, Jesus says that we're to teach these new disciples to obey everything he's commanded. And a pivotal part of Jesus' teaching is the great commandment, which I mentioned earlier. And that's found in Matthew 22, verses 35 and 40. The Pharisees were trying to trip him up. And so one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the text is, first and foremost, is, is loving God with, with absolutely everything that you are. Your body, your soul, your mind, your heart, everything that, that 
that you are. It's not just kind of a like, you know, I like God. He's, he's a good, he's good. You know, I talk to him every once in a while. No, this is, this is the center, the core. This is our obsession. Love God with every bit of your being. And second to that, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus says that the entire law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Some have, some have taken this text to the extreme and state that this is the mission of the church. It was very popular in the social gospel movement, which in its extremes removed the proclamation of the gospel from the work of the church. You, you may have heard this line that it's often misquoted to Francis of Assisi, which, which says, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. He didn't actually say that. <laughs> the, the, the important thing is that I want to be very clear on this, especially being someone who works for Youth Unlimited, which does a lot of social justice work. Good deeds alone, i.e. loving your neighbor, without any proclamation of the gospel, is not the mission of the church. Okay? Good deeds alone, which should be done, which, which are part of what the church is here for, loving our neighbor. We definitely should be doing it. But that alone, without proclamation, without ever speaking the words of the gospel, is not the mission of the church. But, on the flip side, proclamation of the gospel without good deeds, without loving your neighbor, will fall flat and prove powerless. Because true disciples of Jesus will obey everything he commanded us to do. And he commanded us to love our neighbors. So, who are our neighbors? To whom are we sent? In the text, we see Jesus said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The scope is very broad, from local to global. At Central Church here, we've, we value the scope of this mission. If you go to the website and go to the missions page, you'll see a list of our local, our regional, and our global involvement and seeing what we are involved in all over the world. You'll see Children's Haven International in Reynosa, Mexico, which is a children's home for children with broken and abusive and impoverished families. You'll see that we have members, John and Bonnie Esau, serving with MB Missions in Chiang Mai, Thailand, helping church planters grow the local church there. You'll see that Tyler and Cheryl Schultz and their family, also from Central here, are serving with MB Missions in Burundi and the Democratic Republic of Congo. You'll see that as a church, we support Compassion Canada. And the people of Central sponsor 225 children through Compassion's work, as they, they equip the local churches in different communities around the world to reach the kids, uh, both with their physical needs and with their spiritual needs. Locally, six years ago, this church used to just be the people here, just in this place. But we expanded to the Agassiz campus, and now the Promontory campus, and very soon the Lake Erock campus. As a church, together corporately, we support the Cyrus Center, which serves homeless youth here in town and provides 
uh, for their physical needs and their spiritual needs. As a church, we support Jim Gates, who's the spiritual care chaplain at Chilliwack General Hospital. Central and, and a bunch of other churches got together seeing the need for that because there was no chaplain at, the, at our hospital. So we, we came together and banded together, and we support him so that he can do that work. Central has supported Youth Unlimited and is a partner with us in our work to reach unreached youth. We are connected with the Ed Center, providing hot breakfasts every Monday morning, Christmas hampers with supplies for people during Christmas time, and this, this building's use for their functions uh, for graduation at no cost to them. So it's great to see that corporately, as a body, we are doing both local and global things. But what does it mean for us to be sent to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth? If you look at it just geographically, it, it simply means the entire globe, starting with one step out at your front door to the other side of the world. But if we look deeper, we can find that there's more to than just geography at play in Jesus' words. I'll start at the far end and then work my way back home. So the ends of the earth. This is, this is what we typically think of when we think of missions and missionary work. And it's been done for hundreds of years. And there's a lot of work, actually, that still needs to be done. Though, though every country within its borders has some Christians, there are still many people groups that are unreached. So a people group is defined as a group that has a unique culture and a unique language. The Joshua Project identified almost 17,000 distinct people groups on the planet. And of those 17,000, almost 7,000 of them are completely unreached. Zero gospel presence, never heard the gospel story at all. That's 41.5% of the, all the people groups. And for the entire global population of about 7.5 billion, 3.15 billion are those unreached people. That's 42% of the entire globe has never heard the name Jesus, has never gotten a response to hear that good news gotten a chance to respond to that. So some of us might be called and be sent to do that work. Now, what does Judea and Samaria mean for us? It's, it's not geographically far, but it's culturally far. The Samaritans were a despised people. They were the ones, they were, they were Jews that were left behind when, when, when they had been conquered and exiled and they intermarried with some of the people that the conquering nations had left behind. So they were, they were traitors in, in the Jewish people's eyes. They were half-breeds and traitors, and they were completely and utterly despised. But Jesus sets an example about how to treat these people. The story in John 4 with the woman at the well, it's, it begins off saying Jesus had to travel through Samaria. But, but Jews at that time never traveled through Samaria. They always went around. They avoided it. Jesus made a decision to travel through Samaria. And when, and when he was there, the first person that he had contact with was this woman at the well. So not only was she a Samaritan, which Jews despised, 
But even in her own community, she was a despised woman in her own community, a woman of ill repute. You know what I mean? So Jesus went to her and offered her living water. And she was the first person recorded in the Gospel of John to declare Jesus as the Messiah. So if Jesus shows that the Gospel is for her, then the Gospel's for everyone. It breaks all boundaries. The scope of the mission is so broad, but the gospel is the one thing that has the power to, to pull the diversity from all over the world and bring it together. When we think about that, we have to ask ourselves, who, who is our Samaria? Who are the Samaritans in our life? Who is it that we don't like or we don't feel comfortable around or, or maybe we even despise them? And how might God be sending you to them with his message, with his love and with his good news of salvation? Now, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, this is home. This is our hometown, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, the city we live in. No one can deny that our own country, our province, our city, our neighborhoods are now a mission field. Now, we obviously all can't be geographically in the ends of the earth and in our hometown. Some will be sent to one place and others will be sent to others, but we are all sent. Each one of us, regardless of where we are, are sent. Did you ever think of it that way? God has something for you to do. His mission, our mission is the church that he gave us. He wants you to be involved with it. He wants you to reach people. He wants you to love people. It's humbling. It's exciting. It's daunting. But he will give us the power. He will give us the power from the Holy Spirit to be able to do it. So you are sent to your family with the mission of God. You're sent to your workplace, your street, your school, your gym, your favorite fishing spot. You're sent on mission. So the last question is, if we're not doing it, then what's stopping us and what can we do? How many Christians wake up in the morning thinking, God has something for me to do today or this week? Think about the enormity of that thought. God, the creator of the universe, who has all power, sees all things, knows all things, has something for you to do. Or do we wake up thinking, I've got a bunch of things I need to get done today. And I'm going to pray that God will help me get them done. See, we get distracted by our North American life, by work and getting ahead, by paying our mortgage and bills, our hobbies, our kids' activities, making sure they get into the right school, get the right job. But our lives are supposed to be about making disciples. And how many Christians do we know that are actively making disciples? 
We study about it. We memorize the passages. Like, like most Christians know that, know the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've got that memorized. It's like if I would ask my son Isaac, Isaac, go, go clean your room, please. Two hours later, he comes to me, looking proud, smile. Hey, Dad, guess what? I memorized what you told me. Listen, Isaac, go clean your room. Pretty good, eh? Later on, I'm having my friends come over. We're going to have a little study. We're going to figure out what, what would it look like if I were to clean my room. No, I want him to go clean his room, right? God asked us, God told us, go make disciples. That's your job. So here's where, you know, I warned you about the audience participation. So I've got two questions that we're going to work through together. So if you could put the first question up on the slide, please. So I'm actually going to time you. You're going to break into groups of six-ish, and you're going to discuss this answer. I want your group to come up with three reasons for what is stopping you from reaching out to your neighbor with the love of Jesus. And go. Okay, time up. Time's up. Stop talking. Okay. You groups that are still talking, you're cheating. Time's up. You're cheating in church. You're cheating in church, okay? Time's up. Time's up. So who's... I hope hopefully you've all designated a spokesperson for your group and, and re you're ready to share. So, answers. Who's got one? Why do we... What's stopping us? You don't know who your neighbors are. What, what could remedy that? Have them over for coffee. We'll actually get into that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Not feeling prepared. Not feeling, not feeling like you've, you've, you know enough that you're going to have the right answers to the questions and all of that. Yeah. Anyone else? Huh? Busyness. Life is busy. You got four kids? Yeah. Yeah. How's that going? <laughs> Lazy and fearful. Yes. Lazy. It's, it's easy just to come home and, and not do anything. I actually have to be a little wary of that myself in my job because I kind of do this as my job. So when I get home, it's kind of like, well, now I'm off the clock, right? So like in my own neighborhood, I don't have to do this, right? No. Wrong. Mm -hmm. We're worried about offending someone. Just, just curiosity. Who here, who here, did not grow up in the church? Okay. Now, now those people that introduced you to Christ, were you offended? You thought they were weird. <laughs> you did think they were weird. Okay. Okay. Cool. I saw. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's an accountability there. As soon as your neighbors know you're a Christian, they might be looking at you a little bit different, right? Like, if you just keep it quiet, then you don't got to... Yeah. Okay. 
So we've got those things, and we've, we've, we've heard them, right? Like, one of the reasons for me doing this is, is when we take these fears, and fear is not from God. We know that, right? Scripture is clear as that. Fear is not from God. Fear is from the devil. Okay? So we have these fears about doing this stuff. But if we bring that out, out into the light, into the public, you know, we can, we can give that to God. We can, we can lay those, those fears you know, at the foot of his throne and, and, and ask him to help us with those, right? Like, so fear, fear is not of God. God is love and perfect love casts out all fear, okay? So some of these fears, you got to think through them and go, you know, you may not know everything to say, right? But, but you know, enough. Like, you know what you know. Like, you know why you believe. You might not know all the answers to all these difficult, you know, questions. And I get that. I don't know the answers to all the questions. Nobody does. God knows. But we don't know. Um, But I think if you go with love and you care, people can see that authenticity, right? Okay, so so the next question. Uh, If you could put up the next question. So we're going to do this again. What practical thing could you do this week to begin to show the love of Jesus to your neighbor? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take one thing off the table. It's a good thing, but I just, I just don't want to hear this answer is invite them to church. We should do that, but I'm just going to take that one off the table. Let's, let's think beyond that one. Okay? So, two minutes again. Okay, time's up. Time is up. Okay, let's hear some ideas. What's what's some practical ways we can we can start to show our neighbors that we love them? Act. Rake their leaves. Yeah. Last year me and my boys, we didn't during the snow we didn't have enough snow shovels, but we had a neighbor with arthritis who had four snow shovels, so we shoveled a lot of snow last winter. <laughs> Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said walking alongside people as they're hurting and going through stuff. But that takes knowing them, right? To know that somebody's going through a hard time, it takes us to actually know them. Yeah, we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eat together. Who said that? Yes, eat together. It's a good thing, depending on who's cooking, though. Right? Anyone else? Even just strangers, just say hi, just be friendly. I talk to people in uh, grocery store lineups, so I'm one of those people. And uh, sorry if that bothers you, but that's me. I do have to say, Chilliwack is more friendly. We used to live in Richmond, and and then sometimes we'd go to the city, and I I talk to strangers. Like we'd be walking down the sidewalk, I talk to strangers, and they give you kind of like a look, like, who are you talking to, right? And that's sometimes some of the thing that we're 
we're worried about, right? We're worried about being judged. We're worried about not saying the right thing. We're worried about not knowing the right thing, not doing the right thing, messing it up. But simple, simple things like just to getting, to getting to know your neighbors. I remember this statistic that I read years and years ago, so I don't know where it is, and I don't know if it's still the same, but I, re I remember being just blown away by it, that, that I think it was something like within two years of coming to faith, most people have zero contact in their day-to-day -day lives with unbelievers besides, like, you know, their coworkers and stuff like that. But in their personal life, in their social life, the people that they choose to hang out with, not the people that they kind of have to be beside at work or whatever, but the people that they choose to be with, they have zero unbelievers in their life. And, and how, how are we salt to the nations? How are we a light to the nations if that's true? And I think when we look at our passage today, Jesus starts off and says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And, and that's the key. I think that's the key, right? Like it's God's mission that he wants us to do. So when God wants you to do something, he's going to give you what you need to do it, right? Like God's not going to give you everything you need to do whatever you want to do. But if he calls you to do something, he'll give you what you need to do it. So we've been sent on this mission, and we know that he's going to give us the Spirit. And like, that wasn't like the only time Jesus said that. This was like repeated multiple times in the Scriptures where it was kind of like with Jesus' disciples when you know, he, was, he, was, he was after the resurrection. You know, it was kind of like a hurry up and wait. You got this really big job to do, but wait. Wait for the Spirit. Like he told them, don't do anything until the Spirit comes. Because he knew, like, on our own, we can't. We don't know the answers. We don't have it within us. But he will give us the power. So that's, I think that's part of the big thing, is that we have to learn to rely on the Spirit. We have to, to beg God to fill us. As, as believers, we all have the Holy Spirit. But I remember one speaker talking about it one time. It's kind of, it's kind of like we all have the Holy Spirit. It's like your, it's like your, it's like the pilot light in your, your gas fireplace. It's there. The Holy Spirit's there. But it's not really, you're not really feeling anything. You're not, there's not a lot of light that's given off. There's not a lot of heat that's given off. When you flick that switch and that fire goes on, suddenly it fills the room with warmth, fills the room with light. That's like being when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And that's kind of the difference. It's noticeable. And that was one of the marking points of, of the church in Acts. Like you saw, they went out with great power, the great power of the Spirit. So we have to, we have to begin to, to beg God to fill us. And then, and then we need to become attentive to, to listen to the Spirit and to obey when, when we know that the Spirit of God is asking us to go and talk to someone or, or to go and do something. These things, we have to be attentive to that because the more you attune to that and the more you do that, the stronger that connection, that voice, you'll be able to hear the voice of God um, better. There's an there's a up-and-coming author named, named Trevin Wax. That's actually his name, Trevin Wax, um, who writes this. Unless, and, and, and that, the reason I'm reading this is because it, it encapsulates a lot of our values. If you can actually put the graphic up for our values, um, you'll see in, in his writing here a lot of the values that we have in there 
that we value as a church are, are, he's talking about them here and how they all kind of work together. So unless the truths of God's word rooted in the Bible are leading us to mission, we are just studying the gospel as a closed group of like-minded Christians, not an all-embracing group of fervent ambassadors for King Jesus. Miss the mission and you've missed the point of gospel centrality. There is no true gospel-centeredness that does not lead to mission because the gospel is the story of a God with a missionary heart, a father who desires that all come to repentance, a shepherd who seeks and saves the one lost sheep. The purpose of God's word is to reveal God and his plan to us in order that we might then be empowered to fulfill his great commission. God's plan is that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will bring him glory. When we study the Bible, we ought to see it in the light of its purpose, to equip us to be God's missionaries in our communities and around the world. The more we grow in our faith and become like Jesus, the more the heart of Jesus should be evident in our own lives. What greater evidence is there of a Christ-like heart than a passion for God's mission? What greater evidence is there that the truth of the gospel has soaked into someone's life than seeing passion for the lost overflow through our witness? The gospel-centered believer will take on the role of a servant, just as Jesus served us through his life, death, and resurrection. We serve our neighbors out of love, doing good to those around us, showing the love of Christ, and sharing the good news of salvation. Mission mirrors God. We show others who God is and what he is like by the way we live. It's not enough to talk about the gospel in our groups. We need to recognize that the Bible intends to reorient our lives around God's mission and equips us to join him in the work he is doing. The church of Jesus Christ is not the purpose or the goal of the gospel, but rather it's its instrument and its witness. The church exists to spread the gospel to all unreached people. As we look back at the values, we can see they're not just a random list of good things, but rather they flow into and through each other so that we can go sent on mission, equipped and empowered by the Spirit, rooted in the Bible, and centered on the gospel. Amen.